morning, Sunridge. How's the radio doing this morning? Uh, well, it is the first weekend of summer, uh, and thank you very much. Uh, I personally love summer. Summer is a chance for us to uh, relax a little bit, for some of us. Um, also, it's a chance for me to adjust my chair while I buy some time, because I'm tiny. And there we go. <laughs> um, it's a chance for us to, to begin some new things, to go on some vacation, to relax a bit. Uh, this is now too low. There we go. Just right. Goldilocks. Uh, and it's also a chance for us to just do new things. Uh, and one of my favorite things to do over the summer is send our kids to Quest Camp. Uh, but because they just, it's transition. Things are great. Things are happening. Things are new. The fifth graders are now sixth graders. The eighth graders are now freshmen. The seniors are now done and responsible for their own lives, right? Like that's how that works. Uh, but uh, my name is Nisumo. If I didn't introduce myself already, I'm the middle school pastor here. Very, very excited to be here this morning. If you have your Bibles, please open them to Psalm chapter 3. Psalm chapter 3 is where we're going to be. We are kicking off a brand new series this morning. And it's a series called Psalms by the Numbers. Uh, and it's all about the book of Psalms. And the Psalms contain 150 poetic, raw, spirit-filled writings. Uh, and it's considered to be one of the most heavily used, heavily read, heavily taught, heavily studied books of the Bible. And within Psalms, there are a multitude of topics. There are topics like faith, hope love, trust, obedience. There are things like mourning and emptiness. There's praise and celebration. And there's so much more contained in these 150 books. And one of my favorite things about the Psalms, though, is they are always tied to a specific moment in the writer's history. These aren't just songs and poems that were written because someone was feeling super, super creative. Uh, or maybe they got a record label in the early ancient Near East, uh, and now they have to pump out two albums worth of music. Uh, no, these are things that they are writing because it's, it's something they're feeling. They're responding to a situation or something that has happened in their life. And our psalm this morning, Psalm 3, is no different than any of the rest of the psalms. Uh, so let's go ahead and read it, shall we? It's really short. It's only eight verses. Uh, it'll be up on your screens. This comes from the ESV translation. It says this, O Lord. How many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Selah. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. Selah. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Selah. And if you were listening to this, if you're listening, if you're reading along, if you're tracking with what's going on, you might notice that this verse, this psalm, isn't the most uplifting of things. It kicks off, uh, oh Lord, how many are my foes? It, it, it doesn't start in a great place. So why is it a good place to start here? Well, we'll find out. But before we jump into the heart of Psalm 3 and what it can teach us today, it's important for us to look at why it was written and the situations that were surrounding David's life. Because as we already talked about, every psalm is attached to a specific moment in the writer's life. 
And this morning, we aren't necessarily going to be doing a verse-by-verse exposition of this psalm. I won't be going through verse 1 and telling you what it means, or verse 2 and telling you what it means. Uh, but but I, I can guarantee, I can guarantee you, or your money back, uh, maybe, uh, that if you stay with me, I can't give you time back, I'm sorry. Uh, but if you stay with me, you will be just as excited as I am about how God has positioned this particular psalm and used it throughout history. So let's begin. Let's jump in. Psalm 3. Psalm 3 is classified as a lament psalm. And specifically, it's an individual lament. There is one person complaining. And this psalm was written by David to God as a complaint about the things that were happening in David's life. He is not happy. He's not a happy guy. David is upset about how things are working out in his life. And rather than just being someone who has complaints, has issues, and internalizes them and presses them down, and then just like waits for them to fester and fester and build until he explodes, David does the more healthy, maybe, approach of writing them down, of communicating the things that he's feeling. And so he communicates his dissatisfaction with God by writing down this psalm. So when we read Psalm 3, we're not just reading something that was just there, but we are reading an actual prayer of David. And not only is this an actual prayer, it is a prayer where we can almost feel the emotions pouring off of the page. Because he's upset. He's angry. He's tired and confused. And he doesn't know all of the things that are going on around him. And David isn't afraid to go to God and be extremely clear about what he's feeling and what he expects God to do about these things. And so David sends up this prayer saying, God, my life is terrible. My life is really, really difficult. My life is hard, and I want you to do something about it. He's extremely clear and extremely explicit. And I think all of us can recall a time in our life where we looked around at the state of things. We looked at what was happening in the world around us, and we thought, man, I want this to get better soon. Maybe you, you look around at the world now and you think things are broken and someone should do something about this. Maybe that's where you are now. But even though lament, this idea of lamenting, isn't a word we use a lot, it's pretty clear. It's pretty clear that it's something we do often. Here's a few lists, a short list of things that we often lament. Uh, for me, I often lament the fact that when I go to Chipotle, I will ask the Chipotle employee, the burrito barista, if you will, I will say, can I please get extra rice and no beans? And that burrito barista will only give me one scoop of rice. And then I pay for it anyway, because I'm afraid of conflict sometimes. Uh, And I pay for it, and I sit down, and my wife has to hear me say, they didn't give me extra rice. I lament that. That's a thing I lament. But on the other end of the spectrum, on a more serious note, We lament the state of our relationships with family members, with parents, with siblings. We lament our relationships with our friends. Maybe we want to see them more. Maybe there's someone that we just want to see less because we just can't even. We lament the state of our romantic relationships. Maybe we desire one or maybe we find ourselves in one and and the spark just isn't there anymore. Or maybe if you're a parent and you're sending your student off to college, You lament the fact that they didn't get into their dream school, that their academics or their extracurriculars just just weren't enough to get them accepted into that school. 
We lament when we watch the news and we see pictures of war-torn countries, buildings collapsed, and children standing in the midst of the rubble, their shirts and clothing torn, just sitting there waiting for someone to do something. And you might even lament if you've been looking for a job or a new place to live, and at every turn, a door is closed, or worse, you just stop hearing responses. There's a whole spectrum of things we can lament. There's a whole spectrum. There are different degrees of this. But we can't help but acknowledge that all around us, all around us, are reasons for us to lament. When I was in middle school and high school, I had a journal. I had this, this book uh, because I was what's called an emo kid. If you don't know what an emo kid is, an emo kid is a person who grows their hair out long, wears all black, sometimes makeup. I never wore makeup. Uh, they listen to angry music, and they feel bad all the time. And you ask, you ask, if you were to ask me in high school, hey, how are you doing? I'd be like, sad. But really, I'm like super jovial because the Yankees just won another World Series or whatever. But I'm like, I'm sad. It was like an image that I portrayed. And as part of being uh, in this, this group of people, this group of overly sensitive, emotional kids, but like it's not really we're sensitive, we're just portraying ourselves as being sensitive. Uh, in, in the midst of doing that, I had this thing. Uh, it was a journal, but I wouldn't call it a journal. I wouldn't call it a diary because I was mature and I was a middle school student and I thought I was awesome and super cool, even though I was only 4'11 and not. Uh, but, but I didn't call it a journal. I didn't call it a diary. Instead, on the front cover of my black and white composition notebook that I got because I bought an extra one for science class, uh, it was Danny Sugimoto's collection of writing. Because I was like, yeah, that's catchy. That's edgy. Like, I could, I could publish this someday. And in that collection of writings, in that tiny black and white composition notebook, that is where I kept all of my most sincere thoughts. That is where I kept all of my feelings all of my frustrations, all of my prayers, and all of them were written in the language that you only get from teenagers who are trying to figure out the world, who are trying to reconcile the things they're experiencing with the God that they find out loves them. And one, one example of this, I have two for you, one of them would be something along the lines of my science teacher, Ms. Carruthers, who, who failed me on an assignment, she gave me an F, uh, because I only did 10% of it, which I did not think was a good enough reason for her to fail me. And so in my composition notebook, I would have written something along the lines of, Miss Carruthers is the worst. She's extremely mean to me. She gave me an F uh, because I only did 10% of the assignment. Clearly, that's worthy of 10%, not realizing that 10% is an F. Uh, and so I will be protesting her class by not doing my homework because I'm a genius. That is an example of something that would be written in there. But another example came several years later. When I had promoted from eighth grade, I had graduated college, uh, and I found myself living in Fullerton, California, in Orange County. And at this point in my life, I knew that I wanted to go into ministry. At 17 years old, uh, I felt like a pretty clear calling that God was, was, was calling me out, was calling me into ministry, was saying, don't do whatever you want to do. Like, give this up and, and do this, because you will be good at it. And thankfully, I kind of am. So that's like a humble brag. Sorry. That was unnecessary. Um, I'm so sorry. Uh, but, but God drew me out into this. And when I graduated college, I had spent three months working at a camp in Arizona. I had made all these incredible contacts. I had a great experience working at this camp. And I came back expecting to just walk into a church and get hired. I was in the middle of this internship. 
And it was an internship I needed to like really fulfill my degree because I had graduated, which meant that I walked, but I didn't fulfill my unit. And I was in the middle of doing this internship. But in order to sustain living in Orange County because it's expensive, I was renting an apartment with three other guys. And it was expensive. It was a two-bedroom apartment. It was $1,600 for, for all four of us. Uh, it was very expensive. So I had to get a job because I'm trying to be responsible. And so I got a job, and I was working overnight shifts in the stock room of a local retail chain who wear red shirts and brown khakis. <laughs> and I'm working these overnight shifts. I go into work at 10 o'clock in the morning. I get off of work at 10 o'clock. I mean, sorry, 10 o'clock in the evening. I get off of work at 10 o'clock in the morning. And once I get off work, if it's a Sunday, I drive straight over to the church, and I, 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 I do ministry. I hang out with students. I run sound. I do all this other stuff. And at first, this was easy. It was easy. You just shift your sleeping schedule. You, you don't see anybody. You don't really eat. Your roommates that live with you never see you. You don't have any relationships with them. It was easy. But over time, it started to, like, tug at me. And over time, as I was sleeping less and less and less, and as I was making fewer and fewer friends, and as I was spending time just by myself, if I wasn't at work, I was trying to sleep. If I wasn't trying to sleep, I was in the office trying to do my field work. If I wasn't doing any of that, I was just pondering my life. And during this time, I had this notebook, and I wrote down a whole series of thoughts, a whole series of prayers, where I said, is this what I want? Is pursuing this lifestyle, is pursuing ministry, is pursuing this thing that I am feeling drawn towards worth it anymore? Because I'm tired, and I'm tired, and I'm anxious, and I'm ready to just give up. And several months ago, I was flipping through some old journals, uh, some old things that, that I own, and because I'm a hoarder sometimes. Uh, and as I was flipping through, I found this journal, and I was able to reread some of these things I was feeling. I was able to, to revisit the language that I used in 2013 before I moved out here. And I was able to, to almost be placed back in those shoes. And I, I, I title with the date and everything. And I was like, oh, I remember this day. I remember the day I felt like giving up. I remember the day I sat on my bed and I cried. And I called my friends and they said, I don't know what, what you're saying. You're weeping too hard. I remember all of those things. I'm able to relive it. Because I wrote it down, there's nothing better than writing down your thoughts and your prayers and your feelings to revisit. Because in doing that, I'm responding to a moment in my life where things weren't adding up, where things weren't good. And that's sort of what David is doing here. He's responding to a point in his life where things aren't good. And the situation that David is responding to is uh, unique. It's different. At the top of some of your, your Psalm chapter 3s in your Bible, at the top, uh, some of you will have this heading. It says, a Psalm of David, when he fled his son Absalom. And this heading, the, these few words, cue us in to a very important part of David's life. And the story of him fleeing Absalom is found in 2 Samuel chapters uh, 13 to 19. It's six chapters in the Old Testament. It's extremely dense. There's lots of names, lots of language that we just don't comprehend all the time. But a quick summary of the events of this time uh, is, is this. So David has a son, and his son's name is Absalom. But since Absalom is difficult for me to say, uh, I'll just call him Abs. And so David has a son named Abs. And in an act of vengeance, Abs decides to kill his half-brother, murders him, kills him, and then he flees to a nearby city called Talmai. 
And he's in this city, Talmai, hiding away for three years. And at the end of these three years, Abs returns to Jerusalem and he's reunited with David. And David is overjoyed. He finds out all this backstory, no longer blames Abs for what he did. And so he's overjoyed. He's ecstatic that his son is back in this city and in his life. But as time went on, Abs not only received recognition, but he received a little bit of power and a lot of money. And so Abs decided to build for himself a small militia, a small army of people to stand at his side and defend him. And he would also do this other thing. Abs would stand at the city gate. He would stand at the gate of Jerusalem. And whenever people outside of the city had a complaint, they had an issue they wanted to take to David, he would lean against this this gate, I would imagine, uh, and and say like, hey, what's your business here? And this traveler, this, this neighbor, would say, well, I've got a complaint with my neighbor because I live in this city over here. And my neighbor's ox is eating all of my crops. And I want to take this to David. And Abs would go, well, just so you know, there's, uh, there's no one here to, to, to hear your claim. There's no one here to see your case. But if I were a judge, if only someone would elect me to hear these claims, I would certainly make sure justice was brought to you and your neighbor. And so over and over, Abs is leaning against the gate saying, there's nobody here. There's no one to hear your claim. David doesn't want to talk to you. But if you elect me, if I become the guy, if I sit in his seat, I can guarantee there will be justice for all the people. And after doing this for several days, several weeks, several months, eventually Abs wins over the hearts of the people. They love him. They represent him. They speak for him. And they will do anything for him. And so Abs takes 200 people, 200 strong men, to a neighboring city, Hebron. And at this city, they conspire that when they hear this trumpet blast, they are going to announce at the same time, Absalom is king. Absalom is king. Absalom is the guy we want. We don't want David. We want Absalom. And so they go, and it happens. And David's servants hear what's going on. They sprint back to David. They say, David, there's an uprising. There's a revolution. Something is happening. Your son Absalom has won over the hearts of Israel. Everyone wants him to be king. What are you going to do? And so Absalom gets his team together, his leadership together. They have a quick meeting, and they decide that for the sake of their families, for their children, for the members of their city, it is better for them to cut and run, to leave Jerusalem, to drop everything, get out of there, rather than risk whatever consequence Absalom has for them. And so David gathers all his people, the few people who are on his side, and he leads them out of the city. And he leads them into the wilderness. And eventually David begins to climb the Mount of Olives. And every single person in this party is weeping. They're crying. They're broken. They're heartbroken over the loss of their city. They're heartbroken over the loss of their king's authority. And they feel like they have also lost God's providence. And it's against this background. That Psalm 3 is written, with David ascending the Mount of Olives, weeping. His son, his own flesh and blood, attempting to overthrow his God-given authority. And everything is broken. Everything is messed up. And so David pens this psalm, beginning with, how many are my foes? 
Thousands of people march against him. Thousands of people wish to see his authority, his kingdom overthrown. The whole city is against him. And he feels the pressure. And he feels it not only from his people, from his team of leaders, not only from the the other people, the other side, Absalom's followers, but he feels it in his own head and heart. Am I making the right decision? Am I doing what God would want of me? How many are my foes? And not only is David thinking of, of these external circumstances, but he can also hear the rumors circulating throughout the city, the whispers passing down the throne room. God won't save him. God will not deliver David. This is where David falls. Absalom is king. And David is crushed. And he's broken. In the midst of this heartache, in the midst of everything falling down around him, This is how the book of Psalms begins. And the reason why I say that this is how it begins uh, is because even though our Bibles have Psalm as one book, one book with 150 chapters, people who have studied the ancient ancient original Hebrew language have, have noticed that this isn't just one book with 150 chapters. It's actually one book with five books. The book of Psalms is organized into five distinct books it has five parts and psalms 3 psalm 3 kicks off this first book this first section of this collection of psalms what makes it interesting though is when you start to think why would you begin with something so heavy why would you kick off the book of psalms with a lament why would you start in the midst of sadness in the midst of helplessness We have Psalms 1 and 2. Psalms 1 and 2 uh, speak about blessings. They speak about the blessings that will fall on all people who put their faith in the Torah, who put their faith in God's laws. And then Psalm 2 uh, summarizes all of this and says, there's going to be a future Messiah. There's going to be someone who comes in the future who reunites Israel. And these serve as an introduction to the book of Psalms. But very quickly, we shift from trust God's word Someone will come to redeem into how many are my foes? How many are my foes? And if we consider the overall structure of the entire collection of Psalms, we notice something that's pretty fascinating. First, we notice that these lament style Psalms, these feelings of heaviness, these feelings of sadness, most of these are concentrated to the first half of the book of Psalms. As we progress through and through, their frequency decreases significantly. And then if we flip over to the last several chapters of our book, uh, Psalms 145 through 150, we notice that they begin in the complete opposite direction of Psalm 3. This is how Psalm 150 begins. It says, praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Where David opened, started, kicked off with pain, with frustration, with lament, we now find joy, hope, and a desire to worship. 
What was drenched in pain is now saturated in praise. But when we also look at the content of Psalm 3, we notice that it does the same. Because Psalm 3 sets the tone. It sets the tone. It kicks off with the observation that life is hard. Life is difficult. Things aren't going the way that I expect. And it kicks off with David acknowledging there are people who wish to do him significant amounts of harm. But rather than waiting for things to resolve, instead of waiting for all of these events to take place and then writing a summary of saying, oh, in the beginning when this happened, I felt this way, and then in the middle I felt this way, but now I see everything's good. Rather than doing that, David doesn't wait for things to resolve. He just jumps in and says, God, this is hard. This is difficult. How many are my foes? And it's starting this way and kicking things off like this. It lets us know that the next 147 writings are going to be incredibly real. They are going to be in your face. They are not going to be things that you can necessarily read really quickly, consume, digest, and be like, okay, cool, I've learned something. They are going to be difficult things to read. But it also lets the reader know that prayer is a safe space. That when we are communicating with God, it is meant to be a safe space, a space where we can enter into. And we don't have to worry about using flowery, flowery language. We don't have to worry about getting the words right. We don't have to worry about not stuttering over our words or making sure that everything is exactly how we want. And that it's nice and packaged, pretty and, and perfect like an Apple product. It doesn't need to be that. It can be real. It can have edges. It can be sharp. It's a safe space. Because our conversations with God, our prayer life, is also meant to be a platform for us to speak our minds to God. To verbalize the things, the thoughts that are going on in the backs of our minds. And it's a place for us to learn to be direct as we seek clarity. As we seek to understand this, this plan that God has for our lives. This thing that God is doing and building within us. And Psalms 3 leads the way in that. Another thing we notice about the psalm is that Psalm 3 mirrors the whole collection. It starts off in this season of dissatisfaction. And by the end, we see that David's heart has completely shifted. David ends this psalm with, Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessings be on your people. Which reminds us that regardless of the circumstances, David is continuing to choose, to actively choose, to lean in to joy, to lean in and to trust that God will provide the deliverance that David is craving deep down inside. And in every single lament psalm, in almost every single lament psalm, there's this thing that happens. It's called the turn. And the turn is, is this point where there's a shift in the writer's focus and attitude. And it's exactly what David has done here. Life is hard. He states the obvious. Life is hard. Things are messed up. But, God, you are good. Things are difficult. This isn't what I trained for. This isn't a thing that I'm prepared to take on. But, God, you are good and you will fix it. And it's in this moment where the writer, where David acknowledges that there are certain things. There are certain things that only God can control. And by turning his focus, by shifting his focus and saying, God, you are good. I'm putting my trust and my faith in you. David is choosing to relinquish his control and give it all up to God. Say, it's out of my hands. You can do this. I have faith in you. And when we look at the arc of all 150 of the Psalms, 
we notice they have the exact same trajectory. Over time, the writers, the editors, the, the people who put this together, they notice things aren't that bad. Over time, as we read through the book of Psalms, we notice the number of complaints decreases. As you keep going, they find fewer and fewer things to complain about. You know those people in your life that can always find something to complain about? They can always find fault with something, like not getting the correct number of scoops of rice at Chipotle. I am that person. I can critique the daylights out of anything. I would be at the first half of this book of Psalms. Finding complaint after complaint, issue after issue. But over time, the complaints cease. They get fewer and fewer. The space between them gets greater and greater. Because they are consistently being reminded of the goodness and of the faithfulness of God. And when we watch this movement happen over these 150 psalms, we become aware that there are so many more things happening in life than the things that are currently bringing us down. There are so many things happening, so many more things happening than what's bringing us down. We get to take a step back and really consider where we are. We get to take a step back and consider where we have been. And we can notice how God over and over again has drawn us out of our pain, has drawn us out of our problems, out of our lament, and into moments where we can praise God's name. Because God is consistently drawing us into moments where we can genuinely sing hallelujah, which is the Hebrew word for praise Yahweh. And when we only not only sing that, but we mean it. We genuinely mean it. Because laments are real. I don't want to belittle the things that are happening in your life, the things that make you heavy. I don't want to make them seem like they're, they're useless and it's just a starting point to get to something greater. No, your lament is real. Your pain is real. The things you're feeling are real. And they are the natural byproducts of living with people. The natural byproducts of having hopes, of having dreams. But this spirit of lament was never meant to be the place where we land. It was never meant to be the space where our spiritual progress stops and we think life is hard, I'm in a valley, well, I'm here. No, God is drawing us. He is pulling us towards the hallelujah, towards the moments of praise because that is where we are meant to live. And finally, our last point. Psalm 3 reminds us that deliverance comes through Jesus. Deliverance comes through Jesus. When David fled from his son Absalom, he headed off into the wilderness. And specifically, he climbed up the Mount of Olives. And somewhere between David ascending this hill, weeping with his followers, he was able to stop and pen this psalm. But what's crazy to me is that this isn't the only mention of the Mount of Olives in Scripture. So we have David praying aloud, God deliver me. God, save me. God, do something. Take action in my life. Because there are people saying that you cannot bring salvation. There are people saying you cannot deliver me, that you cannot save, that you are not a refuge like you have claimed. But I don't believe that. So do something. Rescue me. Save me. Save me. And a thousand years later, 1,500 years later, we have this guy enter onto the scene. His name is Jesus. And Jesus is this incredible teacher 
This incredible authority when it comes to reading through scriptures. He wasn't raised in the Jewish school system, and yet he knows as much, if not more, than all of the best rabbis in his community. And, and Jesus not only teaches with authority, teaches well, but he can also do these works of wonder. He can heal people. He can perform miracles. And over and over again, he, he does this to the point where he has now amassed a large following. People are, are chasing after him. They want to know what he knows. They want to know if he is going to be a king, if he's going to start a revolution. And in the midst of those people, there are 12 guys that Jesus spends all of his time with. They're his closest friends, his disciples, his students. And on one particular night, they're together celebrating Passover, remembering the history of their ancestors, the way that God has moved in their lives. And they're in this upper room, and, and one guy leaves early. And on this night, Jesus is going to be betrayed. And so they have this meal. They head out into the wilderness. They head out to a mountain. And Jesus is arrested at the Garden of Gethsemane, which is at the foot of the Mount of Olives. So in Psalm 3, we witness David praying to God in the midst of his turmoil, deliver me, save me. They are saying, these people are saying, there is no one that can save me. You cannot bring salvation. You cannot bring deliverance. But God, I know that isn't true. And it took 1,500 years until God answered that prayer. And he didn't just answer that prayer for David and for Israel, but he answered that prayer for each and every single one of us. Because on that same mountain, at that same location, God didn't deliver what David wanted, but God delivered through Jesus, who turned his life over so that each and every single one of us could experience freedom, could experience salvation, could experience being delivered from the problems that we have. And in doing so, God broke the power of sin, demolished the power of death for each and every single one of us. And as people who are privileged to come after this, to come after this psalm was written, to come after in this history where we can look back. We get to see this story arc. We get to see the way that God has intervened. And we get to witness the way that God has moved over and over again throughout history, taking note of how God always shows up and how God will never leave those who put their faith and trust in God. And so as we close out our service this morning, I'd like to invite the band back up. And while they get ready, I invite all of you to consider this freedom that's been offered to us. This freedom that's been offered to us through Jesus. Because whether or not you are in a season of lament, if you are there right now, if that is where you're living, where life is difficult, where things are hard, where it's not what you expected, and there are days where you just want to give up, God's not done with you. And if you are coming out of that, if you are hopeful, if you are celebratory, if you are singing hallelujahs like you couldn't mean anything more, God isn't done with you yet either. God has so much more planned for you as you continue to put your faith and your trust in the God who has delivered each and every single one of us. And if that's a decision you haven't made, if you haven't put your trust in Jesus, you are invited to come explore, to come witness, to come and see. We are more than happy to be a place of safety for you, a place where you, you learn the things that God has in store for you. Because God has not abandoned any of us. 
And Psalm 3 shows us that your season of lament might be the start to the story of praise. We pray with me.